welcome to another episode of the Pet Business Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Eliza, and I am excited to be here today and excited to help you with your pet business. What are you doing to protect your business? I'm not talking about liability insurance or bonding. That's not what I want to focus on today. I want to talk to you today about what you can do to protect yourself and your business from your employees. It's a tough topic and one we don't like to think about, but it's important to protect your business. And today I'm going to walk you through how to do just that. I think it's going to be an amazing show. So give the dog a bone and the kitty some catnip and let's dive right in. What are you doing to protect your business? I'm not talking about liability insurance or bonding. Liability insurance protects your business from being sued or having to pay for accidents or damage done to your clients or their pets. You should have that, but it's not what I want to focus on today. I want to talk today about what you can do to protect yourself from your employees. I know some of you might be saying, but why? My employees are wonderful. They would never do anything to hurt me or my business. I'm going to wager that those of you thinking that haven't had employees for very long. I also know that some of you might be remembering a bad experience you had with an employee and that you wish you would have taken steps to protect your business from that person. I'll also wager that there are more people in that second group than in the first. Most employers have had a less than ideal experience with an employee and have had to deal with damage done by that employee or ex-employee. No one likes to think badly of others. We love our businesses, and we assume that our employees love them as well. Sometimes this is the case. Other times, not so much. I'm going to talk today about some things that you can do before you hire your next employee, when you bring them on board, and during the life of their employment with you. Let's start with the period before you hire. You've advertised for a position with your company. You had several good applicants. You've done at least one interview with them and possibly more. You're now ready to move forward with the one or two top choices. What are your next steps? Well, if you're not checking references, you should be. There's several opinions out there about the value of checking candidates' references. Some people believe it's a waste of time, since candidates would never give you a reference that would say negative things about them. I'm on the side of checking references, though. There are two types of references, personal and professional. A personal reference is one that comes from a friend or a longtime acquaintance. This should be someone who is not related to the candidate and that has known them for at least a year. Personal references will rarely tell you anything negative about a candidate, but they are a great source for giving you additional insight into the personality and motivations of the candidate. Professional or employment references are previous or current employees. In my experience, the idea that references will always say nice things about the candidate is simply not true. You just need to know what types of questions to ask to elicit more honest answers. For example, in addition to asking what strengths the candidate has, ask what opportunities for improvement the candidate has. 
Or you can ask the employer something like, if you were going to change one thing about this candidate, what would that be? And very importantly, ask past employers if the person would be eligible for rehire. Some employers might be tight-lipped about this or about revealing anything about ex-employees, especially the larger companies, but some are more than willing to provide information. As long as you're friendly, professional, and open, they will respond with helpful information. Okay, so now that you've checked references, both personal and professional, and you're ready to make an offer to the ideal candidate, stop. Have you done a background check? If not, why not? It's not expensive. You can do a background check on someone for as little as 30 bucks. It's not hard. There are dozens of online companies that make running a background check as easy as clicking a few buttons. You have almost nothing to lose and everything to gain. Just be careful. You can't legally not hire someone due to a criminal background. But if the background check does come back with issues, you can take steps to address them. A good practice when you get to this point in your recruiting process is to simply ask the candidate if they're okay with you running a background check. That way, if they aren't, you can end the process there with no further time or money wasted. Now that you've gotten past the pre-hire checks, it's time to think about the hiring process. How do you bring employees into your business? What paperwork or contracts do you have them sign? Do you have a non-solicit agreement with your employees? I do. It's part of the employment contract that I have every employee sign before they start work. It's actually not something I intentionally set out to do with my business, but back when I was hiring my first employee, I purchased an employee agreement template and the non-solicitation clause was already in there. I just went with it. I figured even if it didn't do any good, it couldn't hurt anything to have it in there. But let's talk about this for a minute. Does a non-solicitation agreement really do any good? If you've been in business for some time and if you have employees, it's not a question of if an ex or current employee will try to take your clients. It's just a matter of when. I'm not saying everyone is dishonest. I believe that most people are more or less honest. It's just a matter of odds. As your business grows and you hire more people or as you replace the people you lose in this volatile economy, you'll encounter some dishonest employees. Let's take a moment here to clarify the difference between a non-solicitation agreement and a non-compete agreement. A non-compete clause refers to terms that restrict your ability to work for a competing employer. Most non-competes state that you can't work for other employers that compete directly or indirectly with your employer's business. The non-compete period starts when your employment starts or ends and typically continues for a certain amount of time, which can be months or years. Some non-competes also have geographic restrictions, which forbid you from working for employers in a specified area. A non-solicitation clause, on the other hand, forbids you from doing business with your former employer's clients. The non-solicitation period starts when your employment starts or ends and typically continues for a certain period of time as well. 
Some non-solicitation clauses may forbid you from asking former co-workers to join you at your new workplace. A non-solicitation clause doesn't stop you from working for competitors. That last sentence is important. A non-solicitation clause doesn't stop you from working for competitors. Most small pet care businesses have a non-solicitation rather than a non-compete for this reason. Pet care workers, especially pet sitters and dog walkers, tend to do this sort of thing as a side hustle. They often have other sources of income. In most cases, they have to do it this way to earn enough money to support themselves because pet sitting job hours, unless you are a very established company, are variable and inconsistent. For example, I have several employees who do walks for Rover.com. While Rover is a direct competitor to my business, I don't mind my employees doing these walks. It allows them to earn additional income doing something they love, and they're not interfering with my clients. For my business, it means that I can keep employees longer because they don't have to choose between me and another pet job. They can do both. They're happy. I'm happy. Win-win. So for the reasons I've mentioned, I'm going to focus on the non-solicit agreement here. So back to the question. Does a non-solicit agreement really work? The answer, of course, as with most legal documents, is it depends. To be enforceable in Florida, for example, a non-solicitation agreement must generally satisfy two tests. First, the employer must have a legitimate business interest in enforcing the non-solicitation agreement. This might include protecting existing customer relationships or protecting confidential information. Second, the non-solicitation agreement must be reasonable in duration and scope. Duration means the amount of time that it covers. Scope means the geographic area that it covers. These two conditions or similar conditions are taken into account in most other states. In short, the agreement must have reasonable limits in terms of time, area, and types of work. Enforceability will also depend on the specific circumstances and the type of business or industry. Add to that that enforceability varies greatly by state as well, with some states being more favorable than others to an employer in this situation. If you have a non-solicitation agreement with an employee that you feel or you know is being violated, the general course of action is to contact an attorney and ask them to send a cease and desist letter to the offender. This letter, the cease and desist letter, will generally request that the offender immediately stop all solicitation activities in agreement with the contract they signed. If they continue to violate the agreement, it's up to the employer to file a lawsuit to pursue the matter. The only way to actually test the efficacy of a non-solicitation agreement is to take it to court, unfortunately. The defense will try to show that the restrictive covenant was too restrictive. And then this kind of thing is decided on a case-by-case basis. So yes, I believe a non-solicitation agreement is a good idea, but I would recommend having an attorney in your state review it for legality and thoroughness. So now you've done your due diligence with reference checks, 
background checks, and a solid employment agreement. You've brought the employee in and you're training them. Everything is going well and you're well on your way to having a great relationship with your sparkly new employee. Then it happens. Something goes wrong. The employee makes a mistake. That's okay. Everyone makes mistakes. But it's your job as a people manager to work through these issues and develop your people. It may be a minor mistake or a bigger one. You think it through and figure out how you want to handle it with the employee. What's the most important thing to do in the situation? The most important thing you should do is document the incident. I spent 30 years in regulated industries where the motto was, if it isn't documented, it didn't happen. What does that mean exactly? It means writing things down. Not just writing things down, but recording them in a thorough way. If you had an issue with an employee, you should write a brief summary of the issue, what you did to resolve it, any responses or comments from you or the employee, and the date of the issue. I once had to fire an employee who had had several issues, ranging from refusing to follow company policies to actually picking fights with clients. Sometimes you have to let someone go for benign reasons. This was not the case with this employee. He clearly needed to be terminated. Sometime after I terminated him, however, he decided to claim unemployment. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of very deserving folks out there on unemployment benefits, but there are also a lot of people who take advantage of this system. If you've never been through this process as an employer, it's somewhat complex. The state asks you as the ex-employer to provide any information that has bearing on the unemployment claim. Luckily, because I document everything, I was able to provide a clear picture that this person had been fired for cause and not simply laid off. This person's unemployment claim was ultimately denied. And documenting things doesn't mean that you don't trust your employees. In fact, you can share what you've documented with the employee if you'd like. It's simply a written record of events that we can refer to later when everyone's memory of what actually happened is a bit fuzzy or a bit biased. Documentation provides the data you need to make the tough decisions when it comes to keeping or releasing employees. It can also help you give clear feedback to and set clear expectations with your employees, which can minimize any further issues. So there you have it. Do these four things to protect your business when it comes to employees. Number one, check employment and personal reference information before you hire. Number two, run a background check before you hire. Number three, Have the new hire sign a non-solicitation or non-compete agreement. And number four, document, document, document. Do these four things and you will greatly reduce or even eliminate issues down the line. That's our episode for today. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I would love it if you'd leave me a review on whatever platform you're tuning in on. And if you're ready to take the plunge and launch your own pet business Or if you feel a bit stagnated and want to take your existing pet business to the next level, then reach out to me for a free strategy planning session at 
dot the pet business coach dot dog forward slash coaching. That's www dot the pet business coach dot dog forward slash coaching. Thank you so much for tuning in. And remember, you always have a choice. Don't forget to choose happiness.